Hey, um, let me hear you say the word no. no. Look at the kids next to you and say no. no. <laughs> Some parents have been doing that already. You're like, no, shh, no, right? Oh, that was fun. Okay. Uh, there's a reason why I just had you do that. Trust me. Um, from the time our children are born, we're, we're doing that, aren't we? Like, no, no. Son's got a knife, goes to the, stick it in the toaster or in the sock. Like, no, right? Your child's at the end, a little toddler too, at the end of the steps. You know, you're looking up at the top of the steps like, no, right? They're about ready to climb out of the the crib, or they're about ready to put something in their mouth that shouldn't go in their mouth. And what's the first thing we say is no, right? It's like we're always geared to saying no. Trust me, my, at the age of my boys, there's still, that word still comes out. No, no. It's maybe a different tone, a different angle. But we used to say no a lot. And here's why we do it. Because we're trying to protect those we love. Because if they follow through with some of the things they're going to do, we know they're going to get hurt. So we say no for a reason. And that's the love of God. See, he, he loves us and he tells us no for a reason. And a lot of times we go through the Bible and it seems like there's a lot of no's in this book. But they're there to help us because God doesn't want us to get hurt. But we also have to understand this too, that God isn't just a God of no. God is also a God of yes. God just doesn't say, listen, I don't want you to get hurt, and so I'm saying no. God also says, yes, because I want you to have eternal life. Yes, there is a blessing for you. Yes, I've got a gift I want to give you. And he wants us to have an ultimate joy. Sometimes he'll say no to our having fun because he wants that ultimate joy to be experienced in our lives. Turn in your Bibles to uh, John chapter 3. Now, here's what's going to happen. We're going to finish up. I started last week on John 3, 16. I'm going to wrap it up today. So today's message is going to be very similar to last week. So for those of you that are like, oh, man, I was expecting something pretty awesome. Um, I pray that God gives you that, okay? I pray that his spirit speaks to you beyond the words that I'm going to give today. Because it's not about my words. It's about his. And I want to share with you, continue from John 3, 16. And, and next week, um, I'm, I'm, I'm really pumped about the next two weeks and the messages that are coming. Um, but this, this message is so important that we get it. And so it's worth coming back around to it again. So John chapter 3, verse 16. Some of you probably already have this verse memorized, but here it is. What? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on him will not perish but have everlasting life. Now, it's probably an NIV or a King James version of how I remember it, right? But John 3, 16, a, a well-known verse, songs, poems, artwork, posters at ball games all say John 3, 16, and we've seen them, right? Is a well-known verse. Uh, out of the 31,373 verses in the Bible, this is probably the most important one for when it comes to evangelism that's used. It's a lot of verses in the Bible, isn't there? But Jesus was having this conversation with this religious ruler, Nicodemus. And if you remember the conversation we started a few weeks ago, here's this religious leader that knew all the no's, the do's and the don'ts. And he was a very uh, well-versed man, dedicated to the law, occupied a seat on the Judean Supreme Court, if you want to call it that. He had all these credentials, and he was a very important man. But how did 
Jesus approached Nicodemus like anybody else. You're a man just like uh, that man over there. You, you know, you're a woman just like that woman over there. Uh, you may have a great big title and you're very important, but I'm going to approach you as I would approach anybody. And that's what Jesus did. He approached Nicodemus and he wanted to share with him what really mattered in that moment, in that conversation, late at night. He simply told Nicodemus this, you know what? God loves you. You need to be saved. He told him first, you need to be born again. That sort of threw Nicodemus for a loop, if you remember. But then he gets here to John chapter 3, verse 16, and the conversation is still going on with Nicodemus. Some of us, we forget that this verse was still with him and Nicodemus and probably a lot of the disciples around him. And he, he tells him, hey, Nicodemus, I want you to know something. There's a sin problem in this world. And, and, and we have rebelled against a, a holy God. And when you rebel against a holy God, there's going to be consequences. And when we choose to, to live our own way, because that's what rebelling against God is. None of us really think we're rebelling against God. But when we choose to do things our way, we're calling ourselves God. And when we do that, we are rebelling against God. And so we do what's called sin. And there's only one remedy to that, and that's Jesus Christ. But we have to admit, first of all, that we've blown it, that we've sinned. And and here's the thing. We talked about this last week. Our our good deeds, our resolutions to change the way we are living, our, our, our background with our history of our parents or the church I grew up in, our works, our efforts, none of that saves us. If you think you can get to heaven by being good, it doesn't work. If you think you can get to heaven because you got great church attendance, it doesn't work. If you think you can get to heaven just because somebody threw water over you and baptized you, it doesn't work. Those things are all actions on our part that won't save us. And Jesus says there's one action that will save you. And thanks be to God that he provided us with that answer. And that's what's going to happen here. Jesus is going to tell them about it, right? And he says... God loves you, and we probably, let me pause for a moment on this one, because that gets thrown out a lot, doesn't it? God loves you. God loves you. Now, let me ask you this. When you use that phrase, has anybody ever responded back like, how do I know that God loves me? Has has anybody ever asked you that question? Say, prove to me that God loves me. What was your response? How do you answer that question? Were you like, I've done this before. Did you see the sunrise this morning? See how beautiful it was? Have you ever been to an ocean and you see the waves come in over and over? Or maybe you've seen the stars at night or you've been on a mountain before and you see the mountain. You're like, creation screams that God is alive and that he loves me. Right? I've used that before, but you know what? Here's what happens. You meet that person that lost a family member in a tornado or their house was ravaged because of a hurricane. And they look at nature and creation and they say, if God loves me, why did he use creation to destroy my life. Mm. Well, you know what? I know God loves me because love is grand and love is wonderful and I get these feelings that God loves me and and then tell that to the person who's lonely and depressed and they don't get it. So how do we answer that? You know, explain that to somebody. God loves you. That's why John 3.16 is so important because here's where we find out how God loves us, how his love is real, how great it is that he gave his one and his only son, Jesus Christ. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, I sit here and I say, I believe that. I believe that God loves me, that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ. Now, I saw this um, 
in, in a book about how John 3.16 was laid out on a piece of paper. So I want to put that up on the screen for you to see. If you look on the left column, you see it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But if you look on the right side, you see this. For God, who's the greatest lover, so loved, that was the greatest motive, the world, which is the greatest company, that he gave, that's the greatest act, his only begotten son, which is the greatest gift, that whoever, the greatest opportunity, believes the greatest simplicity in him, who is the greatest attraction, should not perish, which is the greatest deliverance, but the greatest difference, have the greatest certainty, everlasting life, which is the greatest possession. Focus on that for a minute, will you? Let that soak in what that verse is all about. When, when you look at these things and, and you say, I've never really looked at it before. It's just a verse I whip through and I use out there to share with other people, right? It is so much deeper, so much richer. And it's, it's okay to pause and focus on that. And that's what we're going to do. For God so loved what? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to put the answers on the screen for you. This will be easy for you, okay? God still loved the world. He, he told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 7, he said this. He goes, you got to be born again. Now, when he said that, that refuted a very popular Jewish idea regarding the way to salvation. They had their idea set on, here's how I receive salvation. And Jesus goes, no, salvation is you got to be born again. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. But now he says this. Jesus goes, for God still loved the world. No, whoa, whoa, whoa. the world? You just changed the whole scope of salvation now. Because to Nicodemus, the Jews of that day rarely thought that God loved the world. To them, God only loved Israel. That was it. And now, Jesus, you're saying it isn't just Israel, it's God loves the world? You're changing the scope of things here, Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yes, I am. Because this is truth. For God so loved the world that he what? Yes, just look at the screen. I'm going to be doing this all morning. Okay, here we go. Yeah, that he gave. Jesus said that God gave his one and only son, the only begotten son. Understand this. This describes both an expression and the gift of God's love. See, God didn't, didn't his love didn't just like feel I can hear our emotions. He just didn't feel the, the predicament of the world like, oh boy, this world's a mess. I just feel so bad. It was more than that. God did something about it. His love compelled him to do something. He just didn't sit back and say, well, I feel bad and I really love them. No, God said, that, that hurts and I really do love them. So I'm going to give them something to help them in their time of need. Because see, here's the truth. If we really love people, we'll do something with that love. We just don't go around flippantly saying, I love you and don't do anything, right? For the people that we truly do love, we give them something. Whether it's our time, whether it's um, maybe just doing something with them, whether it's a gift, whether it's words of affection, we, we, we give something to those that we love. And that's what God does here. And what did he give? He says he gave the most precious thing he could give. His only begotten son. The only one from God who came into existence. Think about that. There were no others like Jesus. He was unique. 
Matter of fact, when you look at the, the Greek word for begotten, or the one and only, it's, and I'm going to pronounce this probably incorrect, but I want to say it in a way you understand, monogenes. Okay. It's an adjective compounded of mono, which is only, and genes, which is a species, race, family, or kind. Okay. Now, when that's used in the Bible, it's always describing a parent-child relationship. And John uses it five times. First in John chapter 1, verse 14 and verse 18. And then here in John chapter 3, verses 16 and 18. And then in 1 John 4, 9. In all these instances, he's talking about the relationship between the Heavenly Father, God, and Jesus. Max Lucado says it like this. God's the Father of all humanity. Jesus alone is the monogenetic Son of God because only Christ has God's genes or genetic makeup. When we have a child as a parent, I transfer my DNA to the newborn. Jesus shares God's DNA. Now, I look at it like this. I have three sons. And so what I understand is that my genes are passed on, my DNA is passed on to them. Just as my father's was passed on to me. Jesus was the only son. None of us has had such a son to give like God did. God the Father gave of his other self, which was himself. Now, don't get lost in this, so let me say it carefully. When God gave his son, he gave God himself. For Jesus is not in his eternal nature less than God. He is God. So when God gave God for us, he gave himself. Follow me? So what more could he give? Simply put, God said, I'm going to give me to this world. But he did it in the form of Jesus. How do you measure that kind of love? That you would give yourself, or in this situation, he gives his son to a world that hates him. To a world that rejects him. I have to ask that question myself. Could I give one of my sons? And here's the thing. I've got three. I'm blessed, right? God, one. Could I give up one son? If I only had one son, could I give up my one son? Not just for those I love, but for my enemy. I'll be honest with you. Not that I would ever lie. But I wouldn't. I don't think I could give up my son for my enemy. But God did. That's why he's God. That's why Paul calls it a gift. In Ephesians 2.8, it says this. God saved you by your grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a what? Gift from God. A gift from God. Last I knew it, gifts are what? They're free, right? Uh, that, has it happened lately at a birthday party or a Christmas? You're sitting around, and the, whoever's birthday it is, whoever is going to receive the gift, they go to hand them the gift. They're like, here you go. Oh, thank you. That's $5. Oh. Here's five bucks for my gift. Thank you. Right? No. Gifts are free. That's an awesome thing about gifts. When somebody gives you a gift, or like, hey, I want to drop off a gift. You're like, yes. that's Because it's free. Somebody's giving you something, Right? And this is what God does. God says, I've got the best gift ever. And it's free. It's free. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son that what? That whoever. Yes, whoever. Raise your hand if this is you, whoever. Okay, if you didn't raise your hand, uh, everybody put them up. If you didn't raise your hand, now everybody in the room, please put your hand up. Everybody. Everybody got their hand up? Some of you are like, I only participate so much. I got you. Hands down. I just want you to look around. Okay, you can put your hands down. You are the whoever. I am part of this whoever. That whoever. This is the recipient of God's gift of love. He's got a gift, okay? Let me ask you this. Some of you are like, I don't know if I want to raise my hand. If God was here today in the flesh, and he goes, I've got a gift for you. This is for whoever. Are you going to raise your hand now? I'm a whoever. Yeah, right? Yeah. You know how it works now, right? God loves the world, but the world doesn't receive or that gift. They don't want the benefit from that gift until they got to do something else. See, here's the catch right here. Whoever what? Believes. Whoever believes in Jesus. See, the world shows us that God's love is open to all, whoever. But then it narrows to whoever believes in him. Believes in means much more than just an intellectual agreement. Like, oh, I agree with that. I agree with that. It's deeper than that. It means to trust in, to rely on, to cling to. See, there's a lot of people who call themselves Christians and they say, oh, I believe in a God. Yep. But they've not fully trusted in his son, Jesus Christ. They don't believe all that's in the Bible. They say, well, yeah, I believe certain things in the Bible, but there's other things. Well, I don't think it's that way. Then let me tell you this. You don't believe in God. You believe in a God. But if you believe in the God of this word, you would believe all that it says. Even the tough stuff in there that's hard to swallow. But this is his word, not yours. This is his word, not the world's. Whoever believes in, and and John uses the word to believe in in a verb form. Not a noun such as faith, but in a verb form. He'll use it 98 times in this book alone. Think about this. He used that word 98 times. Now you take the book of Mark, the book of Romans, and Romans is full of incredible stuff, right? And you look for this word used in there in that verb form, and you combine them together, and John still uses it more than those two books put together. And I say that only because I want you to know how much, again, John wants to emphasize, this is who Jesus Christ is, the Son of God, and I want you to believe in, verb. I want you to believe in him. And I want you to bear witness. Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us that faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. I heard one person put it like this. It's like, it's like a title deed to a piece of property. God tells us that although none of us have yet fully entered into the inheritance that he has promised for us, it's ours through our faith because we believe in him. Nevertheless, faith is our title to that property. Faith is our title to heaven. Faith is itself the evidence of things not yet fully seen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will what? They should not perish, right? Oh, it's the greatest deliverance. This describes the intention of God's love, that God's love actually saves us. And delivers us from eternal destruction. God looks at fallen humanity and he doesn't want people to die. People today are very quick to say, God hates me. 
God just wants to send people to hell. I'll tell you right now, those are both lies. God doesn't want anyone to perish. Matter of fact, in 2 Peter 3.9, it says this, The Lord isn't really being slow about his promises. Some people think, no, he is being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. See, that's the good news. God doesn't want anybody to be destroyed. God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. God wants people to accept that gift, to believe on him, and to experience eternal life. That's the good news. That they should not perish, but what? Have what? Everlasting life. Our greatest possession in the, it's also the duration of God's love. The love we receive among people fades and turns, doesn't it? When you're first growing up as a teenager or even maybe a little bit younger than that, you see somebody, you really like them, you know, and as you get older, you, you see somebody, you're just like, I really like them. I want to date them, right? Or you get older and you're just like, I want to marry that person. And now you're older and you're married to that person and you're loved. But here's what happens. There's breakups. There's divorces. There's moments in life when, when love fades or breaks apart. Take a look at this word again. Everlasting life. See, the love that God gives us There's a duration to this. Eternal. His love for you and I never changed, never fades, never breaks apart. He'll never stop loving his people, even to the furthest distance of eternity. One author said this. The love of God is limitless. It embraces all mankind. No sacrifice was too great to bring its unmeasured intensity home to men and women. The best that God had to give, he gave. His only son. His well-beloved. In your Bibles, open up to John chapter 3. And let's look at verses 17 and 18. In this scripture, we always stop at John 3, 16, which is a great verse, but don't stop there. Read on to verse 17 and 18. Keep reading. It says this, God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through it. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. See, in these verses now, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. He goes, I want you to see the heart of God the Father in in sending me here. I'm here to bring salvation. I'm here to bring healing and hope and to rescue those. Church, Jesus came to save the world. He didn't come to condemn the world. He didn't come to judge the world. He came to save the world. But the fact is, is that the result of being saved is that some will be judged and condemned. Jesus offers us the most gracious, wonderful offer conceivable, and that's eternal life for all who believe. That's a great thing he offers. Yet here's the thing. There's consequences to those who reject that gift. For those who refuse to believe. If you refuse to believe that, if you refuse to believe in Jesus Christ, guess what? There is condemnation for you. There is judgment for you. You're condemned. Sounds harsh, right? You know, Jesus came to bring salvation, but those who reject salvation, they condemn themselves. And this is why people don't want to go to church. This is why people don't want to hear people get religious. They don't want to hear that they're being judged. They don't want to hear that they're being condemned. They don't want to hear that they're bad people. 
But the truth is, when we reject Jesus and his gift, we are condemned. You're either forgiven or you're not. The consequences of those choices belong to us. Paul tells us in Romans 3, 10, 11, there is none righteous. No, not one. Not one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. And we may not like hearing it, but that's true. We've gone our own way, haven't we? We've decided to be the gods of our own life. We've already committed the crime and we blame somebody else. So why are they guilty? Look what John says. You know, Jesus came to save. Some did not accept that. But here's why they're guilty. It says, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. See, most people can't believe that there's a God. You go around and ask a lot of people, do you believe there's a God? Yeah, there's a God. There's a God that exists? There's a God that exists. Do you believe that God is powerful? There's a God who is powerful. Do you believe he sent his son, Jesus Christ? Nope. That's, that's the cutting point right there. Next time somebody knocks on your door and they start telling you about the, their religion, their faith, say, I want to know everything you know about Jesus Christ. If they can't tell you that he is the only begotten son of God, the one and only the unique son of God, you can say, mm, we're on two different discussions here, right? Paul loves having those discussions, don't you? You're like, welcome them to my door. You want to have those discussions, don't you? He's told me that before. He's like, oh, yeah. Let, those, let them come to my door. I want to have that conversation. A lot of us are like getting nervous, don't we? When you think about this, that though is where people draw the line. Here's the thing. They have this un- misunderstanding of who Jesus is. If you ever watch uh, movies like Superman or Spider-Man, okay? Here's the thing. They're superheroes. They're here to save the day, right? Let's pick on Spider-Man. He was one of my favorites growing up, okay? He was the, he was the guy, and some of you heard the story before, that in sixth grade I dressed up like Spider-Man on Halloween, and we marched around in, the, in, in our school, and you would march around in front of your, all the classes, okay? Kindergarten to sixth grade, sit up in the stands, and then your class would come down, and you walk in front and stand there and... Like pose or whatever, I guess. I don't know, it was weird. But anyway, so I went down. I was all excited about being Spider-Man. I dressed up like Spider-Man. But here's the problem. I forgot to put my mask on. It was like sitting on the top of my head. I was like, nobody knows who I am. It's like, no, everybody knew I was. I didn't put my mask down, right? Well, see, Spider-Man, he wears that mask. Nobody knows who he is, but he's out there saving people, right? And as you are watching these movies, you're sitting there going, he is saving the world. He is saving people. He is a hero, But there's always those people out there that don't like that. This gentleman right here, Jonah Jameson, he was the head of the news department, right? All he wanted to do in Spider-Man was just say, he's a bad guy, right? You know, let's let's, let's get this web slinger off the streets. He didn't like him. He opposed Spider-Man. And and if you're watching the movie, you're sitting there going, come on, he's the good guy. Why don't you, you know, step out of the news office and come sit here with me and watch this movie and you see what the good things he does, Okay. That's what you want to do. You want to try to convince him that Spider-Man is really a good guy and he's going to save people. Some people just don't want to believe that in the same way with Christ. Jesus Christ came to save the world, but yet there's people out there, and it's not necessarily that they're evil people. They just don't want to believe that Jesus Christ came to save them. They think Jesus Christ is a hoax. They think Jesus Christ is a vigilante. But there's another reason why People are condemned. Look at verse 19. 
And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people love the darkness more than light, for their actions were evil. And all who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it, for fear their sins will be exposed. Jesus simply explains that, you know, here's what keeps people from faith. is that They just love the darkness. They love pleasure more than they love godliness. They love doing the evil things more than they love doing the godly things. They just love the darkness. That's why they don't want to receive this gift. That's why they fall short of God's standards. I shared this, um, this, this past week about an illustration to maybe help you understand this. If you could picture um, my oldest son, Colin, maybe he's T-ball age, you know, uh, six, five, six years old, and we're out playing catch, you know, and, and he's gotten pretty good at catching the ball, and so, so I throw the ball to him, and he throws it back to me, but it goes over here, so I have to go over and get the ball, pick it up, and I say, come on, son, you're better than that. I throw it back to him, and he throws it again, and comes over here, and I say, come on, son, you got to throw it to me. He goes, dad, you're too far away. Move closer. So I move a little bit closer, and I throw him the ball, and he still throws it over here. It's like, Colin, come on, man. So I pick up the ball, I say, come on, you can do better than this. He goes, Dad, you're still too far away. So I move closer, and I keep moving, and I keep moving closer, and he keeps throwing the ball away. And pretty soon, he's about this far away, and I throw him the ball, and he still throws the ball over here. And I'm going, what's going on? I mean, I've gotten as close as I can get to you, but we're still having problems here in the direction that you're throwing. Well, here's the problem. His aim is off. He's turned the wrong direction, so when he throws, he's not throwing it to me. He simply needs to turn in the right direction towards me. It's the same thing with God and us. God draws near to us. And you can pray for that close relationship with God, but here's the thing. If you don't turn to him, you will not connect with him. We've got to stop loving the darkness and turn towards the light and live in the light as we draw near to him. In contrast, we look at verse 21. It says, but those who do what is right come to the light so that others can see that they are doing what God wants. Church, listen very carefully. I try to sum this up. Jesus died for you and I. He took the sins of this world upon himself And he took that as a punishment for us. He was condemned in our place. Romans 8.1 says, Therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We've all witnessed, probably you've seen a lot of court trials recently in our nation. And some of us look like political theater going on at times. But in a real court trial, what happens is, is when the verdict of not guilty is given, the person on trial basically comes to an acquittal, the prisoner's set free. They, they're not condemned anymore. That's what happened to us. We're on trial for the sins that we've committed. God is basically there as a judge, and Christ has stepped in, and he has taken the punishment so that we can be called not guilty, not condemned. We're set free. When we read in the Bible that we're not condemned, basically it's this. It means that the believer in Jesus Christ receives right now, presently, justification, just as if you've never sinned. Your faith doesn't produce eventual fruit down the road. It's right now. I'm sharing this verse with you because a lot of us are caught up in shame, caught up in doubt, 
It's like, I know God loves me. And he, I place my faith in him and I'm going to have eternal life. But I, sometimes I feel like he doesn't love me. Sometimes I feel like I'm still not forgiven. And sometimes I feel, and sometimes, and I'm going to tell you right now, listen, today, right now, therefore now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Today, you are pardoned from sin. Today, you are innocent in the eyes of God. Today, you are forgiven. The forgiveness of God is not partial. It is perfect. And it will last into eternity. So today, you stand clothed righteous before Jesus Christ. In church, the problem is a lot of us are still walking around like we're not forgiven. You have been forgiven. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. You may not feel like it, and you're carrying around some baggage of some kind of burden in your life and brokenness. You may feel weak and chained to sin. You may feel like you're in the dark dungeons of life right now, but you've been freed. You have been freed. Jesus came to save, not condemn. He came to save, not condemn. But a lot of us walk around feeling condemned. He didn't come to do that. Satan wants you to believe that. Do not listen to those lies. The truth is, you are free. He came to save you. Have you placed your faith in him? Are you trusting him? You may say, well, I've been thinking about it. I've been praying about it. Thinking and praying don't get you into heaven. You've got to believe in him. You've got to believe in him. That is a verb. I want the worship team to come forward. As they're coming forward, I just, again, listen very carefully this. The world that God's love, that God loves, is made up of sinful mankind. It's just the way we are. We are separated from him. Men, women, everybody here, we are separated from God. Our sins do that to us. But the great truth taught in the scripture is this, is that I may drag myself away from God. I, I, I can sort of get to the point where I'm going to run from God too, right? But I can't drive him away from me. Because his love pursues me. No matter how little I may love or think about God, he's always thinking about me. He's always loving me. No one can change that. Truth is, God's love is for the world. That includes you and I. That includes us. Repeat after me. God loves me. He gave himself... Not to condemn me, but to save me. I want to say this again. Listen very carefully. This is what you just repeated. God loves me. He gave himself not to condemn me, but to save me. Do you, do you believe that about yourself, what you just said? If you're saved, you're no longer condemned. You're free today. You're forgiven today. You are new today. You need to hear this today. I need to say this often. But you need to know who you are in Christ. You need to know what the gospel is all about so you can share it with others because there's people who don't know this. You've got the answer. I've got the answer. We can't keep it to ourselves. And the moment we start doubting God's love for us, we're not going to tell people about God's love. The moment you feel bound up and chained up and unforgiven and, and condemned, you won't tell people about God's love. So know the truth. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you're free. You're, you're not condemned. Live with that confidence, that truth. Can you stand, please? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
I love that song we sang as a kid. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. We are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. God, I'm so thankful that you love me. I'm thankful that you love everyone here in this church. God, we want to accept your free gift. But this morning, we also want to acknowledge something that maybe we keep forgetting, and that is you came here to save us, not condemn us. You came here to free us from sin, not make us carry extra baggage of our past that we just can't seem to forgive ourselves bad choices we made. Maybe maybe it was just last night. Maybe it was a week ago. Maybe it was years ago. We just, we just can't seem to let go. But God, you already did. Therefore now, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God, you freed us. You've saved us. You've freed us. God, help us to live with that truth, that confidence. God, thank you for that truth. Thank you that we can celebrate that today. Lord, help us to share that with somebody that needs to hear it. Because there's a lot of people out there that just have the wrong idea about you. Help us to show what is true to them. We love you, Lord. We sing to you now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.